Welcome to The Missing Link. I'm Bryce Lawrence, and today I'm talking with Nicola Moranaris from NGO Shipbreaking Platform. The topic for this podcast is one that fascinates me and at the same time absolutely astounds me that this human rights and environmental problem is so prevalent in the majority of our global supply chains, yet the supply chain owners are hardly aware of the issue. What are we talking about? Shipbreaking, or ship recycling as some people like to call it, on three beaches in South Asia. Nicola, can you give yourself an introduction and explain what you do and tell the listeners a little bit about the NGO Shipbreaking Platform, please? First of all, hello everyone and uh, thank you, Bryce, for having me here today. Uh, I work for uh, the NGO Shipbreaking Platform, uh, which is a coalition of uh, 17 uh, human rights and environmental organizations located in uh, South Asia. Europe and United States, uh, working to promote clean and safe um, ship recycling practices and uh, fighting uh, against the dirty and dangerous ones. Uh, my role in the NGO Shipbreaking Platform is a communication and a policy officer, but we are a relatively small team. So in the end of the day, I end up covering uh, other aspects of, of their work as well. Okay, so many people have looked at the videos online of ships being broken on the beaches of, of South Asia. And if you look at uh, comments online, there's a lot of people that saying it's a, it's a very um, a good job they're doing. What's your view on that? <laughs> Let me start from the fact that uh, we're talking about a significant uh, sector. Uh, around uh, 700 ocean-going commercial vessels uh, reach the end of their service life every year. And whilst uh, I would say until the 70s and beginning of the 80s, uh, ships were dismantled, scrapped, uh, recycled, mainly in Europe and in America, um, when social and environmental protection laws became stricter, the industry quickly shifted to areas where legal frameworks are weaker. And today, the vast majority of ships are broken on three beaches in uh, South Asia under dirty and dangerous conditions. There is nothing clean with um, scrapping ships uh, on beaches. So what, what, what countries are these uh, vessels being scrapped on? Uh, specifically, we're talking about uh, the beach of Alang uh, in India, the beach of Chattogram Chittagong in Bangladesh, and the beach of Gadani in Pakistan. Every year, more than 70% of obsolete ships, uh, which equals to 90% of the gross tonnage dismantled globally, ends up uh, here. So it's dirty and dangerous. Can, can you explain how dirty and how dangerous to the listeners why is there a need for an organization such as yourself to exist? Absolutely. There are massive and significant uh, human and environmental costs of beaching. On the one hand, workers who are often exploited migrants uh, lose their lives and suffer injuries and occupational diseases due to unsafe working conditions and exposure to toxic substances. Workers uh, risk daily falling from great heights, inhaling toxic gases during cutting operations, being hit by falling objects. Explosions and fires also take place uh, relatively often. 
in the last decade, as an organization, we recorded at least uh, 400 workers uh, who lost their lives and uh, 300 workers who got severely injured while scrapping vessels in South Asia. Why do I say at least? Uh, well, because official statistics are not made available by local authorities and there is a general lack of transparency in the sector. This is, well, I mean, what I just explained really concerns exclusively the human cost, but as you rightly mentioned, there are also environmental impacts of, of beaching. Uh, coastal ecosystem and local communities, uh, depending on them, such as uh, fishermen communities, are devastated by toxic spills and other types of pollution if cutting and waste management operations are not conducted in a proper way. And it's um, necessary to point out uh, the fact that ships are toxic because they contain uh, various hazardous substances within their structures, such as asbestos, sludge oils, organotins, heavy metals. And in the majority of the yards in South Asia, these toxics are dumped on the spot and end up contaminating the beach uh, and the sediments. And then the currents and tides distribute these pollutants uh, along the coast. There are, mm, I would say, in the last um, decade, several studies that uh, clearly show how dozens of aquatic species uh, have been uh, wiped out, how thousands of mangrove trees have been illegally cut to make space uh, for the yards. We are really talking about uh, an exploitation of uh, poor coastal communities to protect the interest of a shameless and incredibly wealthy global elite, which is in part based in, in Europe. I've seen online uh, plenty of reports and plenty of images of what appear to be relatively young boys, teenagers working in this industry. So is there a child labour issue in the, the shipbreaking industry in South Asia? There is a child labour issue specifically in Bangladesh, where we record uh, 13% of uh, the workforce being uh, children, uh, teenager, aged uh, um, between uh, 14, 15 years of age and uh, 18. Um, I would like to point out that uh, employing minors of age uh, in hazardous industries such as uh, ship breaking in Bangladesh is illegal per national laws, yet um, the ship breaking yard owners keep employing um, children because of course it's, uh, we're talking about an extremely cheap workforce. Uh, often children are employed during a night shift, um, partially in order to avoid owners being caught by um, local authorities' checks. So um, one assumes that working in a hazardous industry only gets more hazardous if you're working at night in the dark. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. And so is the amount of child labour um, in the industry getting worse or getting better with time? I would say that uh, due to international pressure, the uh, amount of children employed in Bangladesh is uh, decreasing. Back in 2009, 25% uh, of the workforce were children. And we detected back then um, even younger uh, kids. Um, I, I recall that uh, roughly uh, maybe eight, nine years ago, uh, we, we met with uh, 12 and 13 years old. And uh, according to a recent study we published, 
as I mentioned before, um, nowadays, every children employed is above uh, 14, 15 years of age. Okay. So it's, it's getting slightly better, but it's still pretty bad. I mean, uh, teenagers working in hazardous industry is not acceptable to any society, really, is it? Yes, absolutely. And uh, again, it is illegal per international and national laws. Yeah. Okay. So how does this problem exist? I mean, there's rules in place to prevent this from happening, but there's a lot of a lot of vessels that are owned by European com- companies, shipping companies, getting wrecked on these beaches. How does this happen? What controls are there in place to try and prevent this from happening? Well, there are rules uh, that are uh, made and tailored to prevent this from happening, but they're not very effective. Um, at international level, we have the Basel Convention. Uh, which regulates the transboundary movement of uh, hazardous wastes uh, between countries. And currently, uh, this convention uh, prohibits the trade in hazardous waste uh, between uh, countries that are part of the OECD group to uh, countries that are not part uh, of the OECD group. And it's a convention that was um, created and drafted and crafted in order to basically protect uh, developing countries, uh, countries from the global south, from the dumping of toxic waste uh, originating from uh, the richest part of the world. Okay. Uh, at international level, we also have uh, the Hong Kong Convention, uh, which specifically covers uh, the issue of ship recycling. Uh, it was adopted in 2009, but is not yet uh, in force. At European level, we have the EU West Shipment Regulation, which basically uh, transposes into European Union law the Basel Convention rules. And we also have the EU Ship Recycling Regulation, which um, entered into force in 2013 and became applicable recently, a couple of years ago, which is a copy-paste uh, of the Hong Kong Convention, but uh, provides um, higher standards um, related to certain aspects of, uh, of ship recycling practices. And then, of course, you have uh, national rules um, that are aimed at uh, preventing uh, dirty and dangerous practices taking place uh, in these countries. The problem, as I said, is that these rules are not that effective because um, ship owners, the shipping industries, and all the intermediaries that are involved in this sector, in this business, uh, easily circumvent um, this, this legislation. When it comes to the Basel Convention, as a vessel becomes waste only when the intent to dispose of it uh, is evident, it is sufficient for ship owners and intermediaries to hide their true intentions from local authorities. We often see shipping companies falsely denying that ships are intending to be scrapped and shipping companies claiming instead that the ships are heading towards repair yards or that are being sold for a further operational use. Um, also, when it comes to the EU ship recycling regulation, um, which I recall um, uh, as higher standards than the Hong Kong Convention and provides a reliable scheme of independent auditing on site, is easily circumvented by simply swapping the flag of the ship from an EU to a non-EU register. Why? Because the EU ship recycling regulation applies only to European flagged vessels. And within the shipping industry, the shipping sector, it is extremely easy 
to swap um, the flag registry. It is a matter of a few hours and a few bucks. So basically, uh, the vessels are changing flags. So we're back into the conversation that um, is related to seafarer welfare, where there's companies that want to um, skirt around rules. They pick a flag of convenience. Is that the, the correct term? Yes, and uh, until flags of convenience uh, are used, uh, a flag state-based uh, jurisdiction is uh, doomed to fail. And unfortunately, uh, both the EU ship recycling regulation and the Hong Kong Convention are uh, based on flag state jurisdiction. So there is a high chance that uh, these rules uh, are and will be circumvented uh, due to flag hopping to the worst uh, flag registries out there. But in, in some cases, uh, you might have a, a European ship owner who actually already has the vessels flagged in a flag of convenience. Is that correct? Yeah. Or, yes, so- that's, that's, that's quite common, but I would say that there are um, different uh, performances amongst the uh, flags of convenience uh, registries. Okay. There are uh, certain flags of convenience uh, that are uh, deemed to be properly enforcing maritime legislation, even though, of course, they provide... Uh, tax reliefs and uh, financial benefits and fiscal benefits, uh, such as uh, P- Panama, Marshall Islands, and uh, Liberia. There are, however, um, other uh, flags of convenience um, that are well known for poorly enforcing maritime uh, legislation and are therefore ranked uh, uh, under uh, black and grey uh, categories uh, by um, local national port authorities. And these specific flags are especially used at end of life uh, by the intermediaries that buy ships uh, from ship owners in cash, so-called cash buyers. And these are flags such as the ones of uh, Tuvalu, Palau, Comoros, and St. Kitts and Nevis. Okay. Um, If I just come back to um, flag states, um, I... If I'm a importer, exporter, cargo cargo owner, and I'm doing due diligence, it's it's not really um, that useful just to look at what the the flag of the vessels, uh, the flag state which this company uses for their vessels to decide if they have good practice because they are flagging changing flags after end of life so it doesn't really matter what uh they're doing right now in terms of choosing their their flag state for their vessel you've really got to look into what they're doing with their vessels at the end of life is that a fair statement absolutely yes rice um there are currently uh, large respected european ship owners and world leading drilling companies that keep voluntarily circumventing or breaching existing ship recycling rules. Um, Financial institutions, cargo owners, and other supply chain actors need to uh, conduct proper due diligence, ESG analysis, or other risk assessments uh, that also focus on the management of -of end-of-life fleet. Um, I can give you an example uh, through what is known as negative screening investors, for instance, a Scandinavian pension fund uh, such as KLP and the Norwegian government pension fund Global divested from several shipping companies due to their beaching practices. 
And the presence and use within the system of intermediaries, shell companies, poorly performing flags of convenience does not really shield the sellers from responsibility. The whole concept of good sustainability practice or ESG is that uh, you make sure that your waste at the end of its life is disposed of appropriately. You can't just say, well, I sold it to someone and it's not my responsibility anymore. But it seems to be that there's uh, some larger companies uh, around the world that still operate like that in the shipping world. (laughs) The majority of them, unfortunately. Yeah, okay, the majority. So, uh, yeah, I'm trying to be uh, neutral as possible uh, (laughs) without putting numbers out there. But, hey, you say the majority, it's the majority. Um, What about... uh, national rules where these vessels are being dumped do, do they have adequate rules why why do these bad practices especially from the environmental side why do these bad practices uh why are they allowed to occur in these countries there are of course uh, national rules in bangladesh uh, pakistan and india that are aimed at uh, preventing dirty and dangerous practices However, they are um, rarely uh, properly enforced. Um, Why? Well, first of all, because the um, shipwrecking industry, and I'm talking about the owners of these yards, are um, significantly linked uh, um, to um, policymakers and political parties. So there is a sort of uh, strong link between who takes uh, the decision at national levels and who shapes legislation at national level and um, the business uh, side of, of shipbreaking. So the business of shipbreaking, is it a big business for these companies doing it? Are there, is there quite substantial sums of money involved? Uh, yes, I would say that um, economically and uh, also when we talk about material recovery, um, shipbreaking is an important industry, especially for a country like Bangladesh, where um, roughly 40-50% of the national demand of scrap steel is met uh, thanks to uh, breaking of ships. Uh, when we talk about India, uh, I would say that the weight of the shipbreaking industry, uh, industry in India is way uh, smaller However, um, the impact is significant in the region where the beach of Alang is located, uh, which is uh, Gujarat. So we've got, um, we've, on paper, we've got the Hong Kong Convention, we've got the Basel Convention. Who decides, in principle, if a yard meets any standard that exists currently or proposed standard in the future? Is there a system for approving yard A meets... Hong Kong Convention standards or EU rules? Well, right now the problem we're facing that the convention is uh, not in force yet, so all this system is not yet applicable. However, local South Asian authorities are already claiming that existing beaching facilities are compliant uh, with, with the convention requirements. The stakeholders involved in the business of shipbreaking, ship owners earning extra profits by selling to substandard yards, cash buyers, flag administrators of uh, flags of convenience have definitely vested interests in maintaining the status quo. And it is especially telling that the cash buyers that have built the entire business model on scrapping ships on on these beaches are the most uh, hardened promoters of the Hong Kong Convention. 
I would say that another worrying element is that we see in the last years also classification societies issuing so-called statement of compliance with the Hong Kong Convention, which supposedly assess the possibility for a given yard to comply with the conventional requirements. But they are just like paper tigers. Okay, I'm just going to, so we've got uh, classification societies, but I just want to jump back to something you, you mentioned. If I heard you correctly, the, the owners of the yards who are currently running them in terrible uh, ways are strong proponents for the Hong Kong Convention. Yes, they are. But, and it's not in their interest for them to have a convention that is creating healthier, safer, and more environmentally better outcomes. So if they're supporting it, that says quite a lot because they don't want to meet higher standards because it's going to cost them a lot more. Yeah, exactly. I, I would say that, uh, I mean, that's a bit of a generalization. There are some maybe owners that, uh, that care about workers and they care about the environment. But in the end of the day, um, when we're talking about yards or shipping companies or uh, with the world's flag registries or the majority of cash buyers, really what matters is, is profit. And it mm-hmm. uh, doesn't matter if this profit comes uh, at the expenses of vulnerable communities and the environment. So you mentioned classification societies. Are these the same classification societies that classify vessels? Yes. So what mandate do they have to classify shipbreaking yards? Well, these statements of compliance with the Hong Kong Convention are actually issued on a business-to-business basis and are yet another attempt by the industry to greenwash uh, its dirty and dangerous, dangerous practices. Ah, so so I could I could just set up a company called uh, Bryce Lawrence Shipbreaking Certification and sell my services to them, and I don't actually have to meet any standard. I can just issue them a certificate with my signature on it, and uh, that's how it works. Well, you know, these these classification societies are acting as private consultants, so they're not acting as recognised organisations on behalf of states like they normally do. But they're using their reputation from being a classification society to exactly okay. Right, gotcha. So it wouldn't be quite as easy for me to pass off as uh, as issuing a good certificate because I'm not a classification society. But if you've got that reputation of doing classifications to international standards, then they're leveraging off that. And even though maybe what they're doing isn't meaningful. So when we've talked in the past, you've mentioned the classification societies give an impression that the yards are safe and clean. How do they do that? First of all, we're talking about a subjective interpretation by the classification society of a weak convention, the Hong Kong Convention. And this subjective interpretation and evaluation of, of the yards themselves is based partially on documentation, such as environmental monitoring reports that are provided by the yards themselves. When we performed or gave a closer look at these reports, they revealed that basically they revealed a poor quality monitoring. Many of the pollutants that are well known to exist in high concentrations on the beach uh, of Alang or in other ports in, around the world, such as copper, were not even detected in these uh, environmental monitoring reports. So, so yeah, I've got a bit of background in uh, environmental monitoring in, in ports back in New Zealand. And so what, you, what you've just said to me, if I... Uh, understood it correct is 
in all pretty much all ports around the world, you've got background contamination from from the human side of shipping in the port. Yet, uh, in on these beaches where the worst practices occur, they have no detected heavy metals and so forth. Exactly. Okay, so either their um, detection level is too high or uh, the tests are uh, a bit dodgy. Yes, and again, we're talking about uh, probably not all of the environmental monitoring reports and all of the, um, let's say, monitoring that is performed, uh, but a substantial amount of the paper we looked at uh, raised some uh, alarms. Okay. So I'm I'm a ship owner. What are my options if I want to dispose of a vessel ethically and legally? I would say that if you're a good ship owner, the good news is that technology to break ships uh, on stable and contained platforms is uh, ready and waiting. Uh, if you're a responsible ship owner, you will consult um, and recycle ships only at uh, facilities that uh, are approved by the European Union within the context of the EU ship recycling regulation. Indeed, the EU list is uh, the only global independent audit of ship recycling facilities that we have available out there right now. It might not be perfect, but it is what we have and it's the best that we have right now. Um, of course, not all end of life ships uh, can, be scrapped, uh, can be scrapped in a clean and safe way um, due to current capacity issues. Uh, however, studies have shown that at least the EU-controlled fleet could be dismantled uh, properly. So there every, is every vessel that is controlled by a European owner, ultimate owner, could be recycled in EU-approved yards or yards that meet EU standards. Yes, for certain vessels that are maybe above a certain length. Um, the options might be uh, less, but there are all, always options. There's always um, options, okay. And, and at the end of the day, if there's not options, it's up to the industry to find solutions uh, rather than saying, I've got no other option but to use this um, beach. Yes, we're talking about uh, shipping companies' uh, hazardous waste. In the end of the day, yeah. So if they're not willing to, uh, if they're not willing to get into and support yards with higher standards, then maybe uh, they shouldn't be buying their vessels because that's that's what all other industries around the world and developed countries have to demonstrate nowadays. Is that if you don't have the ability to dispose of your waste, you shouldn't be doing the business. Exactly, exactly, absolutely. But somehow there's so much money involved, it doesn't work. But so you mentioned cash buyers earlier. Let's pretend I'm naive, I'm a naive ship owner, and I have a, a company offering me uh, money to take my ship from me. What are the telltale signs um, if I don't do my own due diligence on the, the, the cash owner? that the vessel is going to end up on one of these beaches? Well, my recommendation would be do not negotiate or deal or sell to a cash buyer. Um, there are uh, not uh, so many uh, cash buyers out there. Uh, I would say there are dozens right now that are active and they are uh, quite recognizable. They all have a website, so I would say stay away. 
from from them because they are uh, directly and inherently linked to to the beaching yards. Um, of course, um, if they are somehow hiding. Uh, behind other companies, which might sometimes be the case, that is, let's say, transparency is is not that clear uh, for certain sellers, then I would say that the price is uh, quite a good indicator. If the sale uh, is going to be a secondhand uh, um, sale for operational purposes, the price will be definitely higher than a scrapping sale. Okay. So... If, if there's some value left in the vessel, you're going to sell it for a, a much higher price. If it's going to a, a scrapping yard in South Asia, I'm going to receive more money for my vessel than if I'm selling it to someone who's going to scrap it in an EU-approved yard. Absolutely, that's the case, yes. So if, I'm, if I was wanting to do my own due diligence because I uh, wasn't really sure about the company I was dealing with, I'd go and get a couple of quotes from EU shipyards and compare what they're offering me for my vessel compared to um, the cash buyer or the person I'm not too sure about? Yes, I would say that um, engage directly with recycling facilities that have a good reputation and then you can use it um, as a reference. Okay, so I'm I'm deliberately uh, asking the question, well, yeah, I'm going to ask a question. Is it really possible for a uh, ship owner, a large European ship owner or a large global um, drilling company to not know where their floating assets are being disposed of within reason? Absolutely not. Impossible. So when they say, I didn't know my boat was going to end up, my vessel was going to end up on, on one of these beaches, they are just hiding behind, uh, hoping if the people listening are ignorant. Well, either they know and pretend not to know, or they did not perform proper due diligence before selling the asset, uh, which is also, you know, punishable. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, either way, uh, it's not acceptable because you've got obligations under the waste treaties to do due diligence and make sure your products go into a safe location. So earlier you've mentioned drill rigs, and uh, so it's not just cargo ships and, and container ships. It's pretty much any floating, large floating asset is ending up on these beaches. So earlier you mentioned the oil oil industry. So it's not just container ships and cargo ships and, and oil tankers, but is there a problem with drilling rigs and drill ships and FPSOs and offshore support vessels being broken on their beaches. Yes, in the last uh, three four years, we have uh, witnessed and recorded an increase uh, in terms of number of uh, floating oil and gas units uh, that arrived on the beaches of uh, South Asia, of Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh. Okay. Um, I would like to also point out that there are specific risks uh, related to the demolition of these uh, oil and gas assets. Uh, from transportation and towing issues to the recycling yard to the management of uh, toxic substances uh, that can contaminate the structure of certain units depending on the region where they were deployed. Uh, Substances such as mercury and naturally occurring radioactive material. 
So a drilling campaign where you contract in a drilling rig or a drill ship, the owner of the asset, the owner of the oil field needs to be doing the same due diligence on the actual end of life of the of the floating assets that this company, how this company operates, in the same way they need to check how their contractors are disposing of the actual drilling drilling muds from a, from an oil field and other wastes that occur immediately during the the drilling operations. They they can't just stop there. They've got to look at the whole of their contractors' waste disposal, which includes how they deal with their rigs. Yes, of course. Yes, of course. We're talking about the whole life cycle of, of ships and assets. So end-of-life uh, management is definitely an important part uh, to focus on. That should also be included in uh, legal contracts, for instance. Okay, so um, if I'm an importer, exporter, or cargo owner doing ESG or sustainability supply chain risk assessments, this is an issue I need to be aware of. If I'm an upstream oil and gas company engaging in chartering or contracting any floating assets assets, and I want to conduct proper ESG and sustainability reporting, this is an issue I need to investigate if I'm going to claim I conduct proper due diligence in my supply chain and contractors. And if I'm a bank lending money to any industry that's using money for floating assets, it is an issue that I need to be actively managing if I'm going to claim I have good ESG or sustainability credentials as a lender. Is that a fair summary of the whole situation? Yes, very fair. Okay. So have you got any other comments that you want to make? Because I think we're coming to a, a good end point here. We've covered everything that... Uh, all the questions I've got. So, yeah, is there anything else you want to add to the to the conversation before we close out? No, Bryce, I think this is a good ending point. Okay, so I do have one other question. This is a global problem. Is there, is there any part of the sector where there's, this is not a problem? I guess what I'm leaning towards is are vessels from all over the world part of the problem or is, is it just certain countries? I would say that we're talking about a global problem where the dampers are distributed um, in a balanced way globally. So every country is complicit in a way or another to this new form of toxic colonialism, if you want. So as a person that might be buying services from the shipping industry, I can't just go, I'm buying these services from a company that is based in this region, therefore I don't need to worry about this as a problem. No, you should always worry about this, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, there so are, the, fa- of course- the fact that I'm a European company engaged with a large European shipping company doesn't protect me at all. No, because there are large respected European ship owners that keep dumping their toxic waste on the beaches of South Asia right now. Okay, so thank you very, very much for your time. Fascinating work that you guys are doing. Uh, Without organizations such as yourself, I think a lot of these issues wouldn't come to light. Seems that there's a, a huge amount of work still to be done by the industry. It's an issue that the users of the shipping industry need to be aware of, and it seems to be an issue that the governments and the IMO 
really should be paying more attention to. Thanks for your time. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, good luck. Thanks a lot, Bryce.